welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome to Great Shot Kid, the podcast on the Nerd Party Network that focuses on the often overlooked aspects of filmmaking. I'm John. And I'm Mike. And this week we have quite a special treat for you as we navigate some interesting waters with some uh, new behind-the-scenes news with film that has come out. Of course, you can find us over on thenerdparty.com. If you want to reach out to us, thenerdparty.com slash contact. You can look up Great Shot Kid. You can send us a line that way. You can look up the network's Twitter handle, at JoinNerdParty. Use the hashtag GreatShotKid. You can go ahead and go on over to Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheNerdParty and reach out to us there, again, using the hashtag GreatShotKid. Thank you to everybody that's reached out. Thank you to everybody that continues the conversation with us. And speaking of conversation, I think quite the conversation piece has been released recently from Wall Street Journal, where they, uh, the title of the article was Intrigue and Drama on the Han Solo set. Because, of course, we're in the run-up for Solo, and usually it's all rainbows and unicorns in the press lead-up for these Star Wars films. Uh, although Rogue One had a couple of interesting pieces surface, uh, and Solo has its own interesting piece surface here, and uh, you've had a chance to read it. So going through this article, they talk about the tension that was there with Lord and Miller, uh, between them and Kasdan, between them and Kennedy, uh, a couple of different things about the crew not being crazy about their working style. And so for you, Mike, What's your biggest takeaway from this article? Well, I guess I, I the 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 question the biggest question that I had, which the the article answered, was like how much of the movie was shot by Ron Howard? You know, like in terms of like the final product, how much of it was Ron Howard's and how much of it was Lord and Miller's? And according to the article, about seventy percent is Ron Howard stuff and about thirty percent is Lord and Miller stuff, which I guess makes sense. Mm-hmm. And and they said that that Lord and Miller had seen a, the cut, you know, uh, of the movie a couple weeks ago, and decided not to fight for credit, um, but instead just take executive producer credit, which I kind of figured would would be what happened. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, I guess the thing which you know, and obviously they're talking to sources and blah 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 and. You know, the Wall Street Journal is obviously a credible news source, and it's not like these are just, like, rumors swirling or anything like that. But whoever they're talking to might have their own perspective on things, Mm -hmm. you know, which may or may not be someone else's perspective on things. But, you know, the the thing which, to me, was really striking was that, you know, like, like we've heard before, the script is the same. It's the way that they shot it, but... They were talking about how, and, and, and I kind of, I think a lot of people thought, you know, this was sort of the thing, like they were straying too far from the formula and Ron Howard is someone who would bring it back to, you know, what is sort of known as Star Wars, but they said that they were looking to do something new and, and they, the, the article says like in the vein of Guardians of the Galaxy. And that really struck me and, and really kind of disappointed me <laughs> in terms of like what, what it is we are getting because like I, I remember reading a thing when Guardians of the Galaxy came out, you know, 
James Gunn was doing like a Twitter Q&A or something like that. And they were talking about how they were shooting it with these, you know, super duper digital cameras. I forget whether it was like a red camera or whatever. And it was just like a super clean, you know, digital image and everything. And someone was like, oh, I'm surprised you, you didn't, you know, use, you know, 35 millimeter and throw it back to, you know, things like Star Wars and everything like that. And a comment that Gunn made was like, I'm not trying to make this an homage to, you know, the big sci-fi blockbusters that I grew up with. I want to make this the a movie, a, a big sci-fi blockbuster that today's generation will look back at fondly. You know, it, it, you know, he wants to mm-hmm. be the next thing, the thing that people, in, you know, 20 years from now are mimicking <laughs> instead of, you know, mimicking something from the past. And I thought that that was really interesting. And, and you know, when you look at Guardians of the Galaxy, you can kind of see that. And and I don't think, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm taking what was written in this article to be extremely literal in that they were like, we want to make it like Guardians of the Galaxy. I think that that's more spiritual in 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 tone you know in 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 terms of like what what they mean by that but i do think that that is the way to go really i mean as as much as we you know love nostalgia or whatever and you can say like oh well that's what you know lucas did with the prequels and everyone hated it or whatever and it's like well lucas was doing his own thing which may or may not have have worked but that doesn't mean that other people can't necessarily try to do that too. And it's kind of disappointing that they were like, this is too far, guys. We need to reel this back and make it more like the other movies, you know? Well, I think that there's a very interesting spot that Star Wars is in. I I don't want to re-prosecute old arguments that we've had about like the Clone Wars and what Lucas was doing, blah, blah, blah. We, we've had those arguments a hundred times. People are going to have those arguments until we're all dead. I agree with you in the sense that I do want to see something new and fresh within the Star Wars universe. But at the same time, a lament that I had coming out of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which is why it's so interesting to me that... Um, you know, it, it was mentioned specifically in this article is that I actually walked out of it. I was with I was with Craig and I said, it bums me out that they got there first, that Star Wars can't do this first. And I think that is the the tough water to navigate for Star Wars right now as a brand, as an identity, is that I want them to be, quote unquote, Star Wars about everything. There is a certain rhythm to things. I also want them to try new things within that template. And it's a shame because the thing that they could have done to blow the doors off of it was done already. And so Star Wars finds itself in a strange situation where instead of just being something dictated by the, if you want to call it vision, call it vision. I call it vision. Or whim, if you want to of an auteur, of a singular vision, now they're trying to figure out what their identity is. And so I think it would also be a shame if they were just like Guardians of the Galaxy, because I've already got that. That's actually something that I lamented about Last Jedi. I was was like, yeah, this feels like Marvel humor. 
You know, I've got Marvel movies. I don't want a Mar- I don't want a Marvel movie. So I I I actually wind up falling in the category of instead of imitating this other thing, I would rather them be a little bit more like their known entity, their known self, while they're still trying to figure out, you know, how they can blow the doors open cinematically, uh, you know, while while being a Star Wars film. Does does that make sense? I know that's sort of like long winded and everything, but does what I'm saying make sense? Yeah, but I think they'd have that. I mean, they they still had that that script by Lawrence Kasdan and everything. They're still using, you know, familiar characters and familiar sets and all that stuff. I think that they're just going about portraying those things in a different way and that's I think kind of exciting, you know? Without something to compare it to, you know, like it's so weird because it's almost like the ratio is inversed with uh, with like Rogue One. We all accept that 40 percent of it was reshot and redone by uh, Tony Gilroy. Right. Mm-hmm. That's about the figure that's thrown out there. But with this, it's 30 percent was done by the the original guys. And so like in that situation, if Gilroy didn't get credit, then they don't get credit or or what have you. Um. But I also think I can't help but think of Superman too. Yeah. The only thing, the only way this could quote unquote go wrong for me is if I can sit there and say, I can tell somebody else directed this scene. I can tell somebody else shot this scene. But in this case, they have the same director of photography. So the look will remain intact. Yeah. As opposed to like, if you look, like you can sit down with Superman too. Especially, you can say, oh, that's definitely something Donner shot. And then you mm-hmm. look at something else and you say, oh, that's definitely something that Lester shot. Like, you can tell that the lighting keys don't even match in certain things. Um, or the fact that if, if, you can, if you can't see uh, Gene Hackman's face, that's definitely not a Richard Donner shot because Hackman refused to come back. <laughs> you know, so, like, that, that's, that's really the only way it can go really awry for me. What was interesting, though, and you mentioned Kasdan is this is the first time in an article where I've seen his name so heavily mentioned as sort of like a hand on the rudder for Star Wars in the sequel era. Like he was, we all know he co-wrote Force Awakens, but it's acknowledged in this that Kasdan started showing up at the set unhappy, and it says in the article, talking to crew members unhappy about what Lord Miller were doing. Yeah. So he definitely had a hand in getting to Kathy Kennedy and saying, uh, this is this is a problem for me. But then it also acknowledges something I didn't even know, that he had a, a consultory role on The Last Jedi. Yeah. And so I'm very curious as to what his consulting role was. Is he, because everybody has said, everybody who's had any sort of problem with the direction of the Disney era has said, we need a steady hand. We need a vision. We need somebody as the head of the story group. Of course, Dave Filoni is a name that to longtime fans were like, we want Dave Filoni. Has it sort of been accidentally revealed in this article that Kasdan has sort of been acting in that role? Do you, or do you think I'm taking too much of a leap with that? I think that might be a bit of a stretch because we've heard that about everyone who's made any of these movies. You know, we, we've heard about... I think it was Ron Howard talking about how J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson consulted on on Solo. You know, I mean, like, I think it's kind of one of those things where 
everyone who's around, everyone who's part of the family is going to, you know, sort of like give notes on, on what's going on because, you know, I mean, that's the thing to do. I mean, with mm. Last Jedi, it only makes sense that Lawrence Kasdan would give notes on Last Jedi because he created a lot of these characters, you know? And, uh, I mean, it's just like you have him there, you're going to want to hear his perspective on things. But I don't necessarily think that, you know, he was sort of like overseeing anything in that regard, Mm -hmm. you know? I do think, because this isn't the first time that we've heard about his unhappiness with Solo, I do really think that if it weren't for him, like, saying, like, I hate what Lord and Miller are doing, I don't think that they would have been fired, you know? I mean, you think they would have done like another Gilroy sort of situation where they're like, yeah, this is what we got. Please fix this. Or do you think they would have? Because this article also says Lord and Miller were they said, OK, fine, we're going to reform ourselves. We're going to change our ways. And then they were fired. Yeah. Right. You know, so which is something I can only. Im- yeah, that, that's that's one of two times or that seems to be mentioned. You know, the other time being Colin Trevorrow on episode nine, where. Mm. He writes a script. Kennedy's not happy with it. They have Jack Thorne write a script. Nobody's happy with it. And Trevorrow's like, let me take another stab at it. And Kennedy's like, no. You know? <laughs> Which yeah. is, it seems weird. But but that, yeah. that thing there, right there, I mean, in describing how that all went down, really does kind of suggest to me that it's something which I, I, I assumed from the very beginning that like the, the Trevorrow had a script that everyone liked. And as soon as, you know, they had to re, re you know, rewrite it in order to remove Leia from the script, he just couldn't come up with a story that worked, you know, which makes sense. I mean, if you're if you're locked into a certain vision of something yeah, and then your lead actor dies. Mm hmm. That's a heck of a thing to try to, you know, right. like anybody can be the most creative person in the world, but you've locked in, you've already got the vision in your head. It, it's really hard to get past that. And um, and it probably you know? is a scenario where he pitched an idea and they hired him based on that idea. And now that idea is gone and you have to redo everything and given, you know, what ideas he may have had for this movie without Leia, maybe if if Kennedy had heard that from the beginning, she would have been like, no, that's not what we Mm want to do, you know? And they would have hired someone else. So here's actually a quick question I want to throw out there to you, is when Ron Howard appeared on the Star Wars show, they talked about how Lucas showed up on set the first day. Yeah. Now, obviously, Howard and Lucas have a long-standing friendship. Um, so, you know, there's no story of, like, Lucas showing up on the first day of the set on, like, any of the other ones of these. Yeah. Although Lucas did apparently see some stuff that they were doing on Rogue One and gave words of encouragement to Gareth Edwards. Uh, he liked what he was seeing sort of thing. So my question to you is, do you think that that is confirmation in some way that Lucas had something to do with wooing Howard in specific to be the one or do you think it's just he found out that Howard was doing it and so being a decent person and friend he was like oh cool yeah I'll I'll go over and hang out with him for a day I think that's what it was you know I mean I really think that 
for one thing, I don't think that Howard needed to be wooed, really. I think that Howard was like, I'll do this, because he seems like a big fan of Star Wars. And also, yeah. you know, his career hasn't been a huge success as of late. You know, he's had a string of movies which have not been really big. You know, some of them yeah. have been good, but, I mean, you know, he did that Beatles documentary, which everyone loved, but it's not exactly, you know, box office gold or anything like that. You know, so, <laughs> I, like, I can definitely see him wanting to do that for numerous reasons, and not to mention the fact that, you know, he's friends with everyone who's who's working it, right? And yeah. I can definitely see Lucas being like, hey, they got Ron Howard to direct. I'll go over there and say hi to him. That'll be cool. That'll be fun, you know? But well, I really given that... that- Given that Ron Howard was uh, in contention for directing episode one until Lucas took it, yeah, and Ron Howard actually gave him notes on things, yeah, and 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 it sounds like it wasn't like like oh man, I really want to do this, it, like it sounds like Lucas was like, will you do this for me? And he's like, why don't you just do it yourself? You know, like that that sounds like how that went. Yeah, but I keep on thinking though, of <laughs> just because I, I think it's strange. Like, did you see that that like paparazzi video of Lucas? Like as he was like leaving some event and he's like in a like an alley, like signing autographs. No, I didn't see that. And and this was I, this was like right no. after Ron Howard got the job, right? And he's like going through and people are like tr- just trying to get his autograph, you know. And he's like signing things. And meanwhile, there's someone from TMZ there or something like that. Ugh. And he's like, they're like, what do you, what do you think about? Uh, Ron Howard directing Star Wars and he's like I think he'll be great and like you could tell like he just didn't want to talk to these people at all right you know he's like I think he'll be great and they're like D- do you have any uh, words of advice for him and he's like nope not my job <laughs> <laughs> and then he starts complaining about how like uh, some of these guys getting autographs are uh dealers who are going to sell them on ebay for a thousand dollars so he's not going to sign the stuff for them but yeah but (laughs) i you know honestly i love him so much Mm -hmm. it's not just because he made star wars and it's not just because i really love and plug into his creative brain but like i he just seems like he's what everybody he is what we all want the successful hollywood person to be Mm -hmm. unchanged by the success yeah. You know, he's not he didn't suddenly go out and start, you know, like dating supermodels and doing blow and hanging out at Studio 54 or anything like that. He was just him. Yeah. And it was like, oh, cool. I'm rich and I can do what I want now. Well, this is what I want to do. And like he's I just I love the guy. I, you know, big shocker. Hey, well, hey, John Mills loves George Lucas. But like, seriously, like, it's just so neat to me that he is that real, yeah. I guess. He you know? still wears his plaid shirt and his beat-up sneakers and everything like that. He showed up at the solo red carpet premiere in jeans and white sneakers with a blazer. Oh, like, he was wearing a blazer? Oh, wow. Yes. I, yeah, I, I think that, yeah, he, he was wearing a blazer while he was standing there with uh, Kasdan, hmm. actually. So any Star Wars fans that were, you know, holding on to the idea that there was enmity between the two of them, no, apparently Lucas is like, "Hey, what's up, man?" I always love Larry. Lo- I always love looking at his sneakers. First off, because I want to see, you know, what the Air <laughs> Lucas looks like, but also because I'm <laughs> I'm always fascinated by how 
beat up they are. Like, yeah. Like, you could literally buy a new pair of sneakers every single day and, you know, they'd be like super fresh and clean or whatever. But he's just like, nah, whatever. These are good. But I mean, that's, you know, we all retain certain things from our upbringing. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, why would you throw out a perfectly good pair of sneakers? Like, I'd be, you know, I, that my parents drilled that into me. I wear my sneakers until they're falling apart. You know, like I remember back when Converse cost like 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. I'd wear them till the soles were literally like flapping on the back, yeah, sort of thing. And it's like you got rid of them when you know it started fraying and and you couldn't wear them anymore. So how do you keep a billion dollars? You don't spend a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah. My parents they would get me two pairs of sneakers a year, like one at like the start of the school year and then one at like Easter. I had to yeah. I had to be I had to pick I had to be under fifty bucks and. Mm-hmm. Search for those deals and yeah. Is this a window into your sneaker obsession? Probably. I'm buying the shoes that I could never get when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, that's sort of the same impulse on people who buy, uh, you know, like Star Wars collectibles and stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm buying either what I couldn't get when I was a kid, or something that I lost along the way. Yeah. Uh, sort of thing, and hold on to that. Did you ever hear the the Will Smith thing about his underwear? Do I want to? Sure, why not? Okay. A- apparently, yeah, and this is, this comes from like a an interview that Jada Pinkett Smith did. So this isn't a rumor. This is coming from his wife. Um, <laughs> oh boy. Um, apparently, Will Smith w- wears a new pair of underwear every single day. Now, do you mean? I, I wear a different pair every day. No, he 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 wears he wears a brand a new brand, out of the package pair every day. Right, he is. I guess socks and, and underwear. Like apparently, you know, he he d- didn't he never liked wearing used underwear, and when he became a superstar, he's like, you know what, this is something that I can afford to do, so I'm gonna do it. So every day he grabs a new pair of underwear, he wears them for a day, and then they wash them and donate them to charity and <laughs> pull out a brand new pair of underwear and socks, and that's his thing. I'm glad that they donate them to charity, maybe. <laughs> but that means I'm that there sure. are literally thousands of people out there who have Will Smith's <laughs> underwear. <laughs> I'm surprised They're... that they actually... I mean, I didn't think that they took used underwear, but... Oh, no, there was actually um, a bit of a... It wasn't a scandal, but there was a bit of a, a tee-hee gossip column thing because uh, the tax write-off that the Clintons took for uh, Bill Clinton's used underwear donations was people felt was a little excessive. Um, that probably only ran in the columns in the D.C. metro area, oh, okay. to be honest with you. All right. Um, because... You know, DC Metro is obsessed with all things. I just remember it flashing in front of my eyes and thinking, I really didn't want to know anything about that story. Yeah. Like, I always, I think of that Seinfeld. You know, it's like, why can't I bear, borrow your uh, swim trunks? I don't want your, I don't want your boys in my neighborhood. You know, like, er, I don't know. There's a mental thing, I guess. But I mean, I guess if you're in the situation where, it's, so long as it's clean, why not? I mean, I buy used clothes. Yeah. You know? So why not that? You know, it's, it's all the same thing. A shirt goes on my body too. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's true. Yeah. 
Huh. Uh, Jerry Lewis. I remember Jerry Lewis took flack because he uh, threw out socks. He didn't donate them. That's the key difference. Mm. Uh, I read many years ago that he threw out socks. He would wear them once and throw them out. He mm. never wanted to wear new socks, which, again, or uh, old socks, I mean. So that seems excessive. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Oh, well. And they're, you know, I don't know. Stars all seem to have their idiosyncrasies. You know, Marlon Brando bought an island. And, uh, yeah. You know. You so know, there you go. <laughs> I guess when you have that much money, it's like, oh yeah, you know, you can you can do those things and not even really think about it. It's weird. It's weird though. I don't know. I just think I just think in terms of the modern crop of filmmakers. Like I remember actually, you know what? I remember Tarantino. I remember a story back when Pulp Fiction came out where uh it mentioned that he drove I think it was a Datsun. Mm-hmm. Like he drove the same car, even though he was like wildly successful. I doubt that he still does today, but like they made a point of mentioning how he wouldn't get rid of his old car because yeah. he was like, it's not dead yet. Why would I get rid of it? Right. I think Paul Thomas Anderson did the same thing. Yeah. It's weird. All right. So let's say, for instance, you suddenly get your big contract and you're going to direct a film and you got millions of dollars. What's the first thing you do with your money? I, I think I, I'd, I'd probably invest in a really, really nice home theater. Because I was thinking about how that, that was like, you know, I'm like, oh, well, that's you know something in the industry, right? And that was, it reminds me of a thing with uh, Kevin Smith talking about the guy, oh, God, I forget his name. He produced Mallrats, but he also produced, like, a ton of, like, uh, 90s, you know, movie like everything from like dazed and confused to, you know, like a lot of those universal things or whatever. And he's, and I guess like when they were shooting Mall Rats, like Kevin Smith was living at his house and they like go shopping and they'd go shopping for like laser discs because it was the 90s and he mm-hmm. would buy one of everything and they'd like go to his house. And there'd be just like doubles and triples of a bunch of laser discs and all unopened. And Smith is like, "What's going on?" And he's like, "Oh, you can you know have some. Just take whatever you want. I don't care." And he's like, "Why are you buying all these things?" And he's like, oh, "Well, you know, I figure you know we're lucky enough to work in this industry. We've got to support it." And that's an interesting that's, philosophy. Yeah. That is. Uh, that's very cool. Yeah. Especially considering my only uh, explanation for buying and hoarding multiple copies of things was because of a weird compulsive shopping habit <laughs> uh, that existed. But what so. what would you what would be your first uh, your first thing? You know, you, you say home theater. Uh, my thought immediately goes to because, of course, I live down here. Uh, you know, in Orlando is in Celebration, Florida, which is the town that Disney built and later. Uh, for for Sook. There's a theater. AMC owns the lease and there is a uh, financier, a holding company or whatever that basically this is a two-screen theater in Celebration, Florida that's got an Art Deco front that is not in use. AMC doesn't want to bother. They keep the lease for whatever reason. This holding company won't let anybody at the table without millions of dollars. And the people who have almost gotten them to listen to them uh, have noted how, like, inside, like, the 
you know, hurricanes have come through. There's damage. There's water coming from the ceiling. So it's going to be major extensive repairs and everything. But I promise you, if I came into money like that, I'm, you know, my own movie or whatever, I would buy the lease out on that thing. I would restore it and I would turn it into the best two screen movie theater in all of Florida. Like AMC, I think, doesn't want to let go of the lease because they don't want any sort of competition for their Disney Springs theater. Mm -hmm. But the latest article that I've read says that AMC is kind of like, eh, it wouldn't really be competition. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there's no competing um, with Disney Springs. Yeah. Yeah. But I would turn it into, I would have at least one of the two screens at all times doing revivals. Yeah. You know? Like classics. I, w I would live the dream of like, okay, you know, we've got the hot new release over here for people who live here who want to go see it, but obviously we're not going to draw people, you know, who are vacationing at Disney to come over to Celebration to see it. So on screen B, we're going to show Lawrence of Arabia. Man. We're going to show Rear Window. We're going to show movies that you should see on the screen. And, you know, so that's what I would do. That'd that would be, cool. be a dream. I'd go to that theater. I'd hire you if you'd work for me. <laughs> I'm a very, very good boss. Okay. I think. All right. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. It's good to know. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned Lawrence of Arabia, and, and you know, yep. uh, Ann Coates, the editor of Lawrence of, of Arabia, just passed away this week. She was legendary for, for those people who don't know. I mean, yes, she edited Lawrence of Arabia. She also edited Out of Sight for Steven Soderbergh. She 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 cut Aaron Brockovich, uh, in the line of fire. I mean, like a million movies, even Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, she did everything, and she was one of the best ever. Yeah, and yeah, she she just passed away. She's even got a new movie coming out. Ninety two years old, and she was still editing movies. So, yeah, you find something you love, you keep doing it till it kills you. You know. Yeah, yeah. That's uh. That, that was the wisest piece of advice I was ever given. Yeah. Uh, there are people you don't even think about who, ha you know what, we went to, um, and this obviously isn't a one-to-one, -one. Ann Coates had an indelible impact on film, the films we love across time. But it's an example of a name where we were standing in line for Haunted Mansion the other day. And, you know, they have the tombstones. They have one tombstone that's a newer one where the eyes open every so often or the head moves a little bit. And it's really cool. It's mm -hmm. right by the, the entrance doors. And it, it was another instance where I was with one of my kids and I said, you will never know the name of the person who did that. You'll never stop them on the street and ask for their autograph. But you're having this moment and you're enjoying this because that person loved what they did so much that they wanted to make it awesome. And that's exactly who Ann Coates is. Yeah. Was. Where she's somebody who said, "Let you mentioned, uh, you know, what is Fifty Shades, one of the Fifty Shades." Yeah, she did movies. the first one. Yeah, she didn't turn up her nose and say, "I'm Ann Coates. I'm not going to edit this movie." She said, "Let me see what I can do with this. Can yeah. I make this good? Can I put this together?" Because she just had such a love, obviously, of process. She, she her career was sixty years, sixty years. I mean, it, it, it's crazy. Yeah, and, and I love the fact that it's like, yes, she she edited <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey, right? But 
she did so when she was what 89 years old or something like that yeah <laughs> there's just something about that which uh i don't know it makes me very happy let's see how, how old was she uh it's right here she was it came out in 2000 and what was this where where uh 2015 so she was 90 years old when she edited well she was probably 89 while she was actually yeah. editing it like I'm, i i just keep on thinking of my great aunt you know right and i'm like yeah okay all right i can see that sure why not right and at no point did she say i'm editing softcore porn right now <laughs> she said no i'm gonna do this like you know like she just I mean, and she didn't feel like, oh, well, I've come to this. She's just yeah. doing it. I don't, I don't think that she, good... would, she would have to, she has to do this. It's not like she's, you know. Right. She's just like, yeah, okay, cool, let's do it. Yeah. yeah. Somebody who just showed up and did what they did. Yeah. Yeah, you know. And what's so, what's so crazy about it, too, is, you know, piggybacking on that idea of this is a person who doesn't get stopped for autographs or anything. I, I bet if you track her career, so much of what we love, at, even if you haven't seen, because I still have, I know, Mia Culpa, I still haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia, but even if you haven't seen everything that she's worked on, she had undoubtedly a hand in the way we like to see it. Yeah. Because she was so good at it, so many people wanted to keep working. It's not like she worked for 10 years and then people forgot about it. A 60-year career in Hollywood is crazy. Yeah, I you mean, know? just to give you some some other thing, just looking at the list. Okay, there's Lawrence of Arabia. Um, there's uh, Murder on the Orient Express, the, the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Legacy, a movie which we watched, uh, <laughs> directed by uh, the one and only... Um, Richard, Richard Marquand. Marquand, yes, the Elephant Man for David Lynch, mm-hmm. Grace, Stoke. which was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, it was Grace Stoke, yeah. The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, starring uh, Christopher Lambert. Yep, first movie mm-hmm. I believe ever shot in Super Thirty Five. Could be wrong. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Raw Deal. Oh my gosh! The 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 Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Raw Deal. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that movie. <laughs> She did that. She followed that up with Masters of the Universe. I've s- I have that on my shelf right now. <laughs> there you go. She- That's a Gollum Globus production. <laughs> <laughs> she did What About Bob for Frank Oz. I love that film. It's really good. Chaplin for Richard Attenborough. That was really good. I haven't seen it. It's good. It's really good. Uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. in it is excellent. She did In the Line of Fire. She did Congo. Oh. She did Strip Tease, Out to Sea, Out of Sight, which is amazing, Aaron Brockovich, which is amazing, Unfaithful, Catch and Release, like even that, The Golden Compass, uh, you know. Wow, she even did The Golden Compass. That's crazy. Yeah, and uh, and and she's got a new one coming out called A Dolphin in Our Lake. I don't know what that's about, but it's coming out, so there you go. I feel kind of obligated to see it. Just to see the last work. Yeah, I'm wondering if, I don't know, because there's like no cast or crew. Listen, I'm kind of wondering if maybe maybe she was scheduled to do it and it didn't happen. I don't know. We'll see. 
Imagine being so uh, yeah, good. It's still in pre-production, so it looks like she was going to do it, but yeah. Imagine being so good and so happy with what you do for a career that you're still doing it when you're 90 years old. Yeah. Right? Like right now, I'm riding the 65 as the mandatory <laughs> retirement train, you know? Yeah. How awesome. Like, I would love to have a job where I'd be 90 years old and I'd wake up and I'd be like, cool, I get to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. That's that's kind of an amazing thing. Yeah. It really is. And then, I mean, it's the other thing, though, is it's not like she was just going through the motions either. Like, you know, I, the, for a few years back for the uh, 75th anniversary of the Editors Guild, the Editors Guild polled all of their members on the 75 best edited movies of all time. And if you look at the list, okay, she's got number seven, which was Lawrence of Arabia, which was like 1962 or something like that. And then like 36 years later, somewhere around those lines, she's got another movie, Out of Sight, which appears at number 53. So... I mean, it's like generational, you know, David Lean yeah. and Steven Soderbergh. It's crazy. Yeah. Two masters, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's pretty yeah. cool, man. Yeah. And she worked. With, yeah. And she worked with Soderbergh twice because Aaron Brockovich was his, too. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Also nominated for Best Picture, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. And, and Best that's Director pretty, as well. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Because an editor's job basically is to make a director look great. You I know? guess so, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, when you th- when you boil it down, um, everybody remembers the director's name, and you know, like how many people? I mean, I know that we're, we're a subset sort of thing, but like you know, just to, to refer to Star Wars, how many people, accepting people like us, can tell you who the director of photography was on that? Yeah. Or who all three editors were? Right. And it's the editor's job to make everybody look good. Actors, I mean, how many? Yeah. I mean, there's the whole thing uh, with, uh, oh, who was it? Was it Eisenstein? I forget. Uh, one, one of those guys, maybe maybe it was, I don't know, one of those German guys like Fritz Lang or something like that with the German uh, expressionist movement. I don't know what it was. But, you know, all, one of those film school thingies. But there's like the experiment of like the guy... Um, reacting to the to the object or whatever, and you're kind of like showing like what what it is that that editing does, and it's like you you see a guy like a close up of his face, and he's looking at an object, right? And then they yeah. cut to an object, and they use like the same close up, but they cut to different things. Like one was like a baby. One was like a picture of an old woman or something like that. And one was like a bowl of soup. And they would show those clips to various people. And they'd be like, oh, look at his performance. It's so great. Look at the, the love in his eyes. Or look, he's so hungry. You can see in his eyes how hungry he is looking at that bowl of soup. You know, whatever. And it's like it's the same exact expression, right? It's the editing yeah. which is telling you what it is he's thinking, not the actual performance. He's just giving a blank expression. Yeah. yeah. Or or uh to uh you know again, because of course my brain goes there, um a story I remember reading in the Star Wars Insider about the scene with C three PO and R two when they're having the argument coming out of the ice tunnel in the Empire Strikes Back. 
Um, Anthony Daniels recounted how he had this, what he felt was a great performance where he was berating R2-D2 more harshly than is in the film and for longer. And he saw the editor at work and he saw that it had been trimmed down. And he said to the editor, now keep in mind, I'm repeating the story after many years, but he says to the editor, hey, I, I thought I did a really good job there. You know, what's going on? And the editor looked at him and said, you can't be that much of a jerk this early in the film. Mm -hmm. people are not going to be on your side. I had to cut it back because otherwise you're going to come across as a jerk. And Anthony Daniels says, I suddenly realized at that point the role that the editor played, (laughs) you know, and, and it's true. I mean, you know, that speaks to the point where it's like the editor is the one who sits there and looks at all of the stuff and says, this doesn't, you know, they get that first cut in front of the director and they say, this is really, I think you're going to be your best choice. For things. So, yeah. And you need an editor who's willing and able to stand up to the director and say, I understand what you want, but you really don't realize you want this. And, and, and also someone who, who is who, who does know what the, the director wants and, and how to, to give it to them. You know, I mean, like a, a story yeah. which Soderbergh tells on the commentary for Out of Sight was, you know, after the, uh, I guess if you want to call it the sex scene, which is one of the absolute best edited scenes in movie history, right? There's like a fade to black and then it comes back and there's a conversation about, or, or, you know, between, between the two of them, between, you know, uh, Clooney and, and Lopez's characters where they're, they're talking about, you know, basically, you know, their relationship. Right. And, they were going back and forth as to whether or not to have this extra scene in the movie. And Soderbergh finally decided it doesn't belong there. Cut it out. So they cut it out and they were doing like the, the, the final, final, final pass. And Coates went to Soderbergh and said, okay, this is your last chance. Do you, are you sure you don't want to put the scene back in? Are you absolutely 100% positive that you don't want to put this scene back in? And Soderbergh said, you know what? We, we should put it back in. And Coates is like, yeah, I knew you would say it. I already put it back in. It's good to go. <laughs> How beautiful is that? How amazing is that? Yep. So what, what, a, what a testament to her. And like you said, she knew really what the director wanted. That's that's pretty cool. And now maybe I'll finally see Out of Sight. You haven't seen it? So, I know. We've talked about this. <sighs> I know. It's, I know. I, I'm supposed to see it. I need to see it. Especially as a I, Jackie Brown fan. I promise you. I promise you. It is actually in the top five things that I need to clear out of my queue next. It needs I to be number you. one. I want to I see the four things in front of Out of Sight. Because that's got to be right? a list of really good movies. Right now, I have Rashomon. Okay, fine. Uh, which I need to see. Yeah. Um, because I've never seen it. I have Hudsucker Proxy. That's uh, really good. But I've I've seen Hudsucker okay. Proxy before, though, and I remember it very well. I saw it multiple times, but it, it's for words with nerds. So okay, it, that's an assignment thing. Um, I have the Queen of Versailles. Okay, I haven't seen that. Which is, well, that's uh, about the people who I in an abstract way work for. Okay. So it's, it's interesting. All right. I, 
I kind of I'm kind of terrified to watch it okay. to be honest with you. All right. Um, so and then uh, I have actually uh, because this is all right. Fine, I'll cop to it. It's a rewatch. Um, I actually wanted to sit down and watch Heat again. Yeah. Um, and then I have Out of Sight. So what I'll do is I will bump up Out of Sight above Heat because I'm about to watch Rashomon. Okay. You know what? I'll bump it up above. I'll move Hudsucker Proxy to three. Um, and then I yeah, and then I'll move Queen of Versailles to two, and then I will move out of sight to three. Okay. Does that work? Yeah. I mean I haven't seen Queen of Versailles, but I've seen the others, and it's better than all the others by far. Really? Yeah. Even better than Rashomon. Yeah. Rashomon is one of those ones I'm watching just because I feel like I'm supposed to have seen it. It's I feel I feel really almost good. like I'm okay. Yeah. And it's only an hour and a half, so. I mean, you've yeah. se- I, you've seen all of the ripoffs a million times, of course. Yes. Yeah. But yes. Yeah. But it, it's always good to see the source material. Yeah. I mean, it, it it almost feels like you know, even granted, it was years ago. Like when I finally watched Seven Samurai, I was like, I kind of feel like I'm supposed to have seen this by this point. Yeah. You know. It's way so. better than Seven Samurai. So. Mm, that's a bold statement, my friend. <laughs> Considering it, I still is it really though, I don't know. <laughs> it is really. Uh, oh my God! Seven Samurai still has a phrase in it, uh, a saying in it that I use. That's like my philosophy for how to stay calm about things. Is why worry about your beard when you're about to lose your head? Like, there's you know that like that's that's an incredible line in a magnificent movie. I mean, it's like so. And there's whatever. Okay. And actually, there's, you know what, to speak to Star Wars Rebels, when Kenobi uh, finally, spoilers, get, kills Darth Maul, finally and for good, um, that scene, that scene is a callback to uh, that scene in Seven Samurai when the Swordmaster is being challenged by the guy. Yeah, no, I mean, it's extremely influential and in everything, especially on Star Wars and all that stuff, but... This is, there's a lot of movie there. It's just a long movie. I'm just saying. It's a long I'm, movie. You know, listen, I'm a Michael Mann fan. Yeah. I'm all, yeah. That's fine. You know, I'm all about the long film. The, yeah, but there's, you know, I like the long movies that feel like they're short, you know? That's the engro- See, I felt Seven Samurai was engrossing. Okay. All right. I did. I know I'm in the minority here, but, you know, whatever. That's That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Like you've said, I like to hear the opposing viewpoint <laughs> sometimes. So it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. How long is it? It's been a while since I watched it. It's Seven like three and a half hours. It's like three hours. It's over three hours, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so is Godfather too. I'm cool with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, if anybody wants to talk to you about Seven Samurai and Coats or uh, anything having to do with anything else, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. And you can also find me on my website, filmdamagepod.com, where I do a a show called Film Damage about uh, movies and film projection and all the rest of it. Uh, This week, we just uh, dropped a new episode where we talk all about the various sound formats which are used for 35-millimeter film. So, yes. I I haven't listened yet, but I can't wait. Yeah, well, it literally I'm just came out like while we were recording, so you know. Oh, yeah. excellent! Yeah, yay! I thought I thought it. Uh, okay, yeah, yay! <laughs> I, t- I got something to listen to tomorrow morning on the commute. There you go. Excellent. There you go. Yeah. So very cool. 
and of course, you can find me as Kessel Junkie on your uh, social network of choice. And you can find me at, right here on the network co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations with Matthew Rushing. And you can find me out there in the ether co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. So thank you uh, once again for joining us here on Great Shot Kid. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Join the revolution. Join awesome. the nerd party.